everyone see? I kind of set myself up here so that I would hopefully enable... Yeah, perfect. We can all make eye contact awkwardly at some point. Sir. Um, cool, so it's good to be with you guys this morning. And for those of you who don't know me, I'm Brian, um, and I'm an elder here at East, and delighted to be able to share a bit about uh, Acts 17 today um, with everyone. And so, um, just kind of for starters, I thought it'd be good... For us, just to kind of recap what we were talking about the last few weeks, we've been in Acts 16 with some pretty, um, I think, exciting stories of what Paul and Silas have been up to. Um, I just wanted to see if anyone wanted to kind of recap. We're going to kind of do the call and response here. But anybody have a bit about what we talked about previously? Do you remember her name? Huh? Do you remember her name? Linda? Lydia, no. Yeah. If Linda was here, she'd be like, yes, thank you. <laughs> of course. That's, that's exactly it. Yeah. That's, and then something happens in jail. That was pretty fantastic, John. There's, I thought everyone would know the jail part, but you actually gave us all the important information leading up to it. That's awesome. What happens in jail in, uh, in Philippi? There's a, they're singing hymns, worshiping, and uh, then an earthquake happens. The, their shackles are broken off and the doors of their cell is open, but they don't leave. Because um, the jailer's about to kill himself because he thinks all his prisoners got out. And they said, no, we're here. And uh, he, wants, he wants what they have. They tell him the gospel. He converts. And uh, his, his household is saved. And then uh, they're like, I guess we've got to get you out of here in the middle of the night. They're like, no. Actually, I want you to escort me out. And the officials, because they're, uh, you know, Paul's, at least Paul, and the rest of them are Roman citizens. And so, mm-hmm. you know, have the guys come and escort them out of jail. Yeah. That's, exactly, that's where we, we end with the, the folks kind of freaking out and then marching them through the city, like letting everybody know it's okay, they're in good standing. And this is important, I guess, to Paul and Silas, because if we recall the very beginning, right, he has a dream about uh, a man from Macedonia. They're going to go east, deeper into Asia Minor, and they have this dream where the guy says, hey, you know, come to us, we need your help. And Paul realizes this is actually, God is calling him to go west, going deeper into the Roman Empire, that direction. And so his first stop, it's interesting, that ends up in Philippi and, of course, in jail. And I guess it would make sense that by the end of that, it'd be nice if um, folks don't look at them as outlaws in every single city they start to walk through. So... um, Crazy, but really, really awesome at the same time. So, um, yeah, we walk into Acts 17. We've been on Acts, I guess, now for... Someone can tell me how long we've been in Acts. It'd be 17 years. 17 years. <laughs> um, 
exactly, one, one chapter a year. Um, well, we're going to do a year's worth of work today then. Um, so we'll be going through all of 17. But yeah, we've been going through Acts for a while, and it's been really cool, I think, as, um, as a community for us to look at what are the actions taken by the church. The Holy Spirit comes, and then what, what do we do? And how do we mirror the actions of Paul and the disciples as they take the gospel out to the world? And how do we look at our own community here? And how can we learn from what they're doing there into now? And so, um, so today we start in 17. And they're heading to, uh, to Thessalonica. And you all know, who know me know that I love the message translation. And Jonah was kind enough to find it and allow us to put it on the screens here. So we're going to read through in each section. Paul's going to come to three different cities, to Thessalonica, to Berea, and then to Athens. Um, and we'll read through the, each section and kind of talk through it together. And um, who knows, we might do some interaction in the process as well. This is, um, they took the road south through Amphipolis and Apollonia to Thessalonica, where there was a community of Jews. Paul went to their meeting place, as he usually did when he came to a town, and for three Sabbaths running, he preached to them from the scriptures. He opened up the text so they understood what they'd been reading all their lives, that the Messiah absolutely had to be put to death and raised from the dead. There were no other options, and that this Jesus I'm introducing you to is that Messiah. Some of them were won over and joined ranks with Paul and Silas, among them a great many God-fearing Greeks and a considerable number of women from the aristocracy. But the hardline Jews became furious over the conversions. Mad with jealousy, they rounded up a bunch of brawlers off the streets and soon had an ugly mob terrorizing the city as they hunted down Paul and Silas. They broke into Jason's house, thinking that Paul and Silas were there. And when they couldn't find them, they collared Jason and his friends instead and dragged them before the city fathers, yelling hysterically, these people are out to destroy the world. And now they've shown up on our doorstep, attacking everything that we hold dear. And Jason is hiding them, these traitors and turncoats who say Jesus is king and Caesar is nothing. The city fathers and crowd of people were totally alarmed by what they heard, and they made Jason and his friends post heavy bail and let them go while they investigated the charges. So, one thing we talked about and mentioned, and Austin's mentioned a few times beforehand, but every time Paul goes into a city, what happens? Where does he go? It's that interactive portion I was mentioning earlier. Uh, Yeah, to a synagogue. And I think in reading through this, we're going to see this kind of continue to play out as Paul goes. But um, it's interesting to me. I was, I was thinking about why does Paul go to a synagogue? Well, you know, he's, he's, he's Jewish. He's a Pharisee. He's very learned in the law. And so this is a place he would have gone before he was a, a follower of Jesus. And it's also a place that he can walk in and have the conversations he's had all his life with people wherever he goes. So it's this place of uh, familiarity. But it's also a rhythm for him, because when you travel, I mean, there's certain things, some people here, you know, you might, you might just love to find that McDonald's in the middle of China when you show up there. I may not join you in doing so, but that may be, you know, it's, that, that's why those types of things feel like nice for folks, right? It's familiar. It makes you go, okay, this is second nature to me. And that's, um, that's what Paul's finding. He's, he's got these rhythms he's set into his life that are now enabling him, wherever he goes, wherever God calls him to, to remain familiar, to step into something that is second nature for him. And maybe think about our rhythms as a community, as, as East, what, what, and even as individuals. What kinds of rhythms do we have, whether they be restore groups or, or meeting uh, on most Sundays or, or during the week for us as individuals? What, what do our rhythms look like? What are the things that are so second nature to you that while you're doing them, you can think or do um, something else? And the reason I mention that is 
of course he's in Greece and we're going to quote Aristotle here, but um, I think it's interesting. The implications of a rhythm are um, we are what we repeatedly do. Excellence then is not an act, but a habit. And behavioral psychologists, when they talk about a rhythm or a habit, it's something that when you get it ingrained in you so deeply, your mind stops to put as much energy into actually accomplishing it. It becomes second nature. And in that process, what happens is you're able to put energy towards things in that moment of that habit that you wouldn't already be able to do. And so for Paul, when he walks into a synagogue to have conversations about Jesus, it's not something where he's got to worry about what is he going to say and what kinds of, what are, what kinds of conversations are they having and what do I need to wear for this and all the things you might think about if you had to walk into a new place. He knows the drill. And so when he walks into that building, it's... I know everything that's going to happen. If you're a football fan, you know how the game goes. You know the, the rules, um, you know, where you watch the game. This is, this is Paul's, you know, wherever that place is for you, this is his. And I think it's important for us to consider um, not so much that we have to, to change sometimes our entire lives around new rhythms, but sometimes take the rhythms that we have uh, and make them uh, more powerful for the work that God wants us to be involved in. And so when Paul walks in there, these conversations he's having, he can talk the, whatever it is from the law that someone's talking about. And in the meantime, because this is a habit for him, he can look into people's eyes and see how they're responding to him. He can pay attention to the relationships in the room and then enable himself to be that much more attentive to what God's calling him to. It's a lot harder to speak and focus at the same time in everybody in this room if, I, if it's not something that's coming out of me. I know that I'm, I would struggle with that anyway, but the fact that Paul is in a place that he's been doing this for 30-some-odd years or more makes it so much easier for him to, to talk to the people who end up following Jesus. So, um, and then I guess the question's about that too, kind of currently. I'll come back to this, but be, be thinking about what, what do your rhythms say about you? As I was looking at this, I started thinking, like, what are, what are rhythms that I have? Like, I, I go to work most every, every day of the week. That's a rhythm. That is, I know when I wake up, I'm going to get up, I'm going to do certain things, I'm going to have my coffee, I'm going to probably have a bowl of Uncle Sam's cereal. If you haven't had it, it's four ingredients since 1908. Lots of flax seeds, and I love to eat it. You can find it at one central market up north, not the one in the south. I don't know why. Um, but those rhythms, you just, you just know you're going to do no matter what. And I think it's one of those things, too, though, when I think about other things that I do, like whether it be reading scripture, or what kinds of conversations am I having with my coworkers or my neighbors? What kinds of rhythms can I have, or should, I say should, it's not, it's not something to make us feel poorly, but more something that gives us opportunities to say, wait, if I made myself available on the front porch for 30 minutes every Tuesday, what might happen? If I made sure that during lunch at work I made a point on these days to invite folks to go with me, could I build relationships? Could I get to know people in such a way that I could actually be intentional in that conversation enough to know that person better, or to see how they respond when I ask how they're really doing? I think that's what Paul does an amazingly good job of with his rhythms, is getting into a place where Jesus can be on his heart and his mind, and everything else can kind of fall away into the second nature that it really is. Um, and again, I, I get the idea, of if you've traveled a lot, the idea of walking into a city and finding a place that you feel comfortable, it's like, an, you know, you, everyone wants that anchor. Right? If, you've, if you've ever traveled somewhere, like you like to find like some coffee shop or some restaurant or your family's house, where you can just like feel like, ah, oh, this is my place in this city. That's the synagogue for Paul and Silas. Um, so in addition to that, I guess what I'm getting at is that rhythms give us freedom. And I used to be somebody, I think, who would, who would push back at the idea of having too much regimented a schedule. 
maybe some of you guys are like me, where it's like, I just want to have like the weekend where it's wide open and anything can happen. I don't have to be constricted by stuff. But I think, in fact, what I've seen in my own life is the more structure that I have around the things that matter most, that just falls into life working the way that, I don't say it just should, but it actually feels good. I accomplish the things that I set out to accomplish, and in the moments of accomplishing those things, I'm able to dive more deeply into the relationships around me. So I just think that's something to note about Paul's rhythms. Um, But, you know, another rhythm that he didn't actually create, but it seems to follow him around is when he speaks about Jesus, folks get offended, folks get angry, folks, you know, people follow him, but he gets rejected by many, which is actually something that Jesus said was going to happen in the the beginning, back in John 15. Um, But here you go, you know, Paul's in, in Thessalonica, the hardline Jews who have some level of power, uh, for the most part, you know, get angry, and they decide to utilize that power to, whether they're paying folks off, whatever else, to start driving a, a mob uh, around Paul and Silas. And I think it's important to note that when that all happens, you know, again, they, for whatever reason, they don't find Paul and Silas. They find Jason, who um, is where, where Paul came to. It, we go to First Thessalonians, and you read that Paul's been here for three Sabbaths. He's there for like a month. But within that month of time, he builds relationships with those who follow Jesus alongside him, that they're the ones who are willing to go into the middle of the city. That they, when they get there, they don't say, oh, we don't know who Paul is, or it's a terrible guy, I don't want nothing to do with him. They're willing to post giant bail on their behalf. They're willing to, to back them up. And I think, for me, that's a very, it's a challenging thing, right? I think you're kind of taught to say, like, well, I have to build a, a relationship with someone over at least, you know, 10 beers and 10 coffees before I'm willing to actually talk about who Jesus really is. Like that's a, well, I mean, I don't think that, the, the, that actually lines up. And actually, recent studies don't line up with that either. But the point being, Paul, in three or four weeks, with the kind of love and the kinds of rhythms that he builds with people, those people are willing to go in front of the city that maybe even, may even kill them and say, hey, we're with this guy. So I don't know. I mean, I guess that's an encouragement and also like a challenge. Like, can I love people well enough that in a month those people will be the kind of people that say, yeah, I vouch for that guy all the way down the line. Um, that's, that's who Paul is, and that's also what God does through him. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, so let's go into verse 10. So, so after Thessalonica, we get to, um, to heading to a city called Berea, which is, I think, about 30 miles west of Thessalonica. It says, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went... Oh, I'm reading from the NIV. What am I doing? I, I, I asked to read the message, and here I go. Um, so, that night, under cover of darkness, their friends got Paul and Silas out of town as fast as they could, and they sent them to Berea, where they again met with the Jewish community. Rhythms. They were treated a lot better than, uh, than in Thessalonica. The Jews received Paul's message with enthusiasm and met with him daily, examining the scriptures to see if they supported what he said. A lot of them became believers, including many Greeks who were prominent in the community, women and men of influence. But it wasn't long before reports got back to the Thessalonian hardline Jews that Paul was at it again, preaching the word of God, this time in Berea. And they lost no time in responding and created a mob scene there, too. With the help of his friends, Paul gave them the slip, caught a boat, and put out to sea. Silas and Timothy stayed behind. The men who helped Paul escape got him as far as Athens and left him there. Paul sent word back with them to Silas and Timothy, come as quickly as you can. So this is just, I think this is so like life, but things go okay in Thess- Thessalonica, but then you know, things get broken up. 
Okay, I, got my, I have my, my rhythm, the way that I do things, uh, my habits. I get in the next town, things go even better. So I'm seeing that God is working. I mean, you can kind of put yourself in this position, whatever you feel like God has you in right now. But you, know, you start up, you, you try to uh, climb up the mountain, and it seems like, oh, I've kind of reached a spot where things are starting to roll. And this is why I was called into Macedonia in the first place. And right, right as things seem to be going the way that they, you, you'd want them to go, the same folks 30 miles east are, have the wherewithal, have the, the money, have the anger about them from Paul being in Thessalonica to get people 30 miles away, which is not an insignificant amount of you know, mileage back in those days, and get folks out to Berea to come chase them down to shut them up in whatever way might make sense at that time. And you see Paul here having to leave the city, and for whatever reason we don't know, but Silas and Timothy stay behind in Berea. Is that because the folks there are just phenomenally excited and they need to be discipled even more? Um, is that because there's only one space on the ship to get out of the city and Paul is the one decided to go through and so they get him on it? We, we don't know. But we're left with Paul saying to Timothy and Silas, come as quickly as you can. So the idea being, this wasn't the plan. This wasn't my rhythm. We travel together um, you know, let's, let's get this thing back to the way it should be. And so I think it's, it's interesting to see now, Paul's had this rhythm we've talked about for multiple different chapters, and suddenly that, that rhythm is broken. And what happens when Paul gets to Athens? What happens when Paul gets to Athens? It sounds like a song that should be from the 50s. Um, and, and his rhythms are gone. The people he's traveled with aren't there. And maybe the synagogue is not the same as it was previously. Um, and he's alone. I think that's something that gets to many of us as you kind of walk out of the room. It's sometimes I have all this excitement when I'm around folks that I, I know love me and I love them and we care about Jesus together. But when I'm by myself, you know, traveling for a trip or meeting with a new client or, you know, wherever it might be, um, around folks that I don't know and I feel a little unsupported, what do I do? What, what comes out of me at that point? Do I, do I shift into a different mode? Do I self-protect? Um, what happens? I think that sets us up really well to say, okay, Paul's got this, this rhythm in his life. Paul's got this rhythm that allows for Jesus to do a lot of really great things in him that he's given to, to God, and now that rhythm is broken. So reading in verse 16, and bear with me, we'll read through probably so about 17 verses here. Um, now we're in Athens, uh, the great Athens for you history buffs like me. I know you're out there, Neil. Um, so the longer Paul waited in Athens for Silas and Timothy, the angrier he got. All those idols. The city was a junkyard of idols. He discussed it with the Jews. In fact, junkyard's important because the city used to be huge. It's down to like 10,000 people post-Roman sacking and whatever else. So it's got this like ancient glory. Um, reminds me of a New York Times article on Rome recently where it's so dirty in the city People are almost embarrassed of it, and yet they have millions of tourists coming all the time. That's how Athens was then. Um, the city was a junkyard of idols. He discussed it with the Jews and other like-minded people at their meeting place. And every day he went out on the streets and talked with anyone who happened along. He got to know some of the Epicurean and Stoic intellectuals pretty well through these conversations. Some of them dismissed him with sarcasm. What an airhead, Eugene Peterson. Um, he's the translator there, airhead. I love it. But others listening to him go on about Jesus and resurrection were intrigued. That's a new slant on the gods. Tell us more. 
And these people got together and asked him to make a public presentation over at the Areopagus. This is actually where you would go and get... Um, it's a place where you talk about religion, politics, and law, but it's also a place that if you're talking about things that are new and you're new to the city, you actually have to get licensed to continue to do that. So they're saying, we, this is interesting. Come tell us so that we can give you a license to do more of it. Um, or not. So they said, this, this is a new one on us. We've never heard anything quite like it. Where did you come up with this anyway? Explain it so we can understand. Downtown Athens was a great place for gossip. There were always people hanging around, natives and tourists alike, waiting for the latest tidbit on most anything. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed, to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God, so that you can worship intelligently, know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him, as if he couldn't take care of himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide-and-seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in him. Can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well, we're the God created, or we are God's offspring in most translations. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better, but that time has passed. The unknown is now known, and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything's set right, and he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. At the phrase, raising him from the dead, the listeners split. Some laughed at him and walked off making jokes. Others said, let's do this again. We want to hear more. But that was it for the day. And Paul left. There were still others, it turned out, who were convinced then and there and stuck with Paul. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris. So, a lot of different stuff going on here. Um, But... This, this chapter, this part of the chapter has always been striking to me about Paul, but also something that we um, can take in. And I think, I think most folks in here, I mean, we live in Austin. I wouldn't say that Austin is Athens by any stretch, but um, it's a city where people like to learn. There are a lot of universities. There are a lot of things, a lot of entrepreneurial endeavors, people taking risks, being creative, doing different things. Um, and I think it's interesting. Paul is a Roman citizen. He grew up learning... Torah. He grew up learning about the Bible, um, and that was what he did. That was his job. He was a learned man. But if you're somebody who cares about education, somebody who cares about learning, you know that you don't stop doing that. And I think it's one of the things that we talk about here as as a part of our core um, character at East is to be learners. And so I think it's interesting that when Paul's rhythm is broken, when Paul doesn't have the normal, you know, ways about him of being able to walk straight into a synagogue. He does do that, but you see in this case, he also, that's right, walking into the synagogue, that's my daughter. Um, she, uh, or he, um, at that moment, starts to ask people outside the synagogue what's going on. I want to learn about you. I want to learn um, what you're thinking about. What makes, uh, she's going to take everybody's attention away. Um, it's that hat. So, so jumping back in here, um, 
Paul's in Athens, and what he's doing in that moment is, you know what, I, I don't have all the information. I don't know everything about the way you do life. I don't know how you grew up with your family. I don't know um, what you care about most and what your religion looks like. Um, but he starts asking. And I think that's a big, it's a big thing. You know, one of the things that makes me, I don't know how you guys feel about this, one of the things that makes me feel most cared for is when folks ask you questions when they, when they are interested in you, when you don't have to sit there and like tell a story because someone actually wants to know your story. And I think it's interesting that Paul's, you know, the way he goes about things, when his rhythm is broken, um, is to go and care for the people there. And caring for those people means learning about them. It means getting to know them. It means asking people questions. In a city where asking questions and talking about these things is the way to do it. Um, and so he goes and does that. But I think the, the interesting thing to, to note here is that when your rhythm's broken, is your purpose deeper than your practice? Because for Paul, his entire life is about following, and making, following Jesus and making him known. That's it. When Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, and when Paul becomes a follower of Jesus, that's not just words that were spoken. That's, that's it. Um, which is a word to us as well, but... I think what's interesting is that that purpose deepens what happens when, when suddenly you can't do your normal workout in the morning, Sometimes, and when you can't do the normal stuff that you would normally do, when you can't meet at Imagine Art on a Sunday, what do you do? Um, is your purpose deeper than your practice? Because at the end of the day, you can do lots of things habitually, but when those things are broken, you find out how important what you were doing those things for really is. And for Paul, it's... I'm going to the synagogue and I'm caring about people like I've always done, learning about the law and how it affects what we do everywhere. Well, now I have, this, now I have Jesus and he's walking with me. And what would Jesus do? He would ask people questions. That's the whole, that's the whole mic-match, that's the whole Jewish tradition is going back and forth. I want to learn about you. I want to learn about what you're thinking. How does this actually touch your life when you put this law into practice? Um, and again, when you do that, you know, again, he's just asking people intentional questions. I, I, I hasten to think that, that that's not something we don't want to do and can't do today. Um, and again, I need to go back to some of these articles I've read recently. But I think The Atlantic had something in it like early of 2017 about dinner parties, and it was ironic, but the studies had actually shown people going in to parties where you think, oh, don't talk about God, don't talk about politics. Actually, those, asking questions about those things what everyone was craving. And so it's, we've, we've bought into a lie that asking good questions about what's really important isn't what people want. Um, in fact, it's like what everyone's craving. So Paul does that. And I think, again, this is, this is who Paul is, but it's also something for us to follow. When you ask good questions to people, you show that you care. And when you show that you care, the context of how you speak changes. And you see Paul here, he's, he's, he's looking around the city to an unknown God, and he speaks directly to something that is very, very personal, very, very real to any Athenian. We, I mean, historically, they, they made uh, openings for people who had other faith backgrounds, other religions who came into their city, maybe other Alexander at other times, and they would say there might be a place for that God here in our pantheon. So they're a, a generally tolerant in some ways of worshiping most anything, but they also have some very specific groups that think differently about that, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And he speaks directly to their culture and their context. If you're listening, if you're not speaking all the time, but if you're listening well, when you do speak, you speak to someone where they are. 
And that's exactly what Paul does. And in fact, he even quotes from one of their um, one of the Stoic philosophers. Um, his name is like Aris, Aris or something like this. Aristarus. I need to look it back up. But when he says we are his offspring, your poets say this. Like when you speak to people, I remember being in um, goodness in India, speaking with some some Muslim friends there. It was interesting like, to find all the areas where we could talk about Jesus because they may believe differently about Jesus than I do. But being able to speak towards where you also talk about Jesus creates an opportunity for us to have conversations about. So how do you feel about that? What, what really matters here? How do you see Jesus in this area? And it gives us this chance to connect and go deeper about what's most important, what, what purpose is out there. And again, in a way that's caring. He's not, he's not beating people down with, you know, again, he couldn't. These people don't even follow Torah for the most part, or so many, many of them don't in the Areopagus. He's just engaging with people in a way that's intentional and real and in a way that matters to them. And so uh, he goes through this whole process. It's, it's a fantastic case study and how to speak to people who are different than you. And then at the end of it, it sounds like hardly anybody responds, which I think is, again, like I was thinking about this last night. I wrote down, like, am I more worried about being rejected in a conversation about Jesus or more worried about causing offense? I don't know how that lines up for you guys, but um, what, in, in those types of conversation, what did Paul walk away and go, oh, this was terrible. I did it totally wrong because I didn't get the immediate you know, dopamine response of everyone turning around and doing exactly what I hoped they would. Um, I didn't close the deal, whatever else. Um, no, in fact, important people in that city turned and said, yeah, we're going to follow Jesus. Um, even if there were only a few of the many hundreds that were there. But I think it speaks to that type of rhythm in Paul too because what he's done is he's made his life about speaking honestly, openly, boldly, but in a way that's truly caring for people, about who Jesus is and how much he loves them. And when you do that, in such a way, you're doing it for the Lord. You're doing it for, for God. So the idea of being afraid of being rejected when God already approves of you shouldn't matter. The idea of, like, the gospel is going to be offensive to all of us at some point because it tells us that we're sinners. It tells us that what we're doing is not right. And no one feels good about being wrong. And yet, Paul speaks to people in a way that empathizes with exactly where they are, that cares for them, and doesn't bring the hammer down on people. But he's not going to not say what Jesus says is true. It's true. And so I, I think in kind of coming to a head on, on 17, the idea that Paul, Paul isn't counting numbers. Paul is working through a rhythm that's been given to him by God. And whether one person starts following Jesus because of what he's doing, or in the case in Berea, it sounds like maybe a quarter of the town might have, He's going to go in there and spread the good news of what Jesus has done. He's going to ask really great questions of people there and walk through scriptures with them that they believe and that he's talking through and that he believes. He's going to eat with them. And he's going to do so to such a degree that people, after a week or a month, are willing to stand up in a city and say, yeah, this guy's he's a, he's, he's a good guy. I trust him. Um, and I think it speaks to the kinds of rhythms and relationships we want to have. So kind of in closing on that, what rhythms in your life currently, and maybe what rhythms in your life um, that aren't there just yet would enable you to, to bring Jesus into more of your friends and coworkers and neighbors' lives? Not, you know, beyond all the things that we would say, ah, well, that's kind of like, 
Paul's showing us that that's not the case. You don't need six years. I've been believing that for a long time. You don't need to, like, you know, prove out your own fear over the course of time when in reality, studies show the way you love people is asking really good questions and talking about what's important. Um, What rhythms will bring those in your life closer to Jesus? As well as yourself, frankly. That's what I struggle with. Um, And how much does your purpose uh, impact your practice? So asking that question of when I'm doing the things that I'm doing, is, is my reason behind it the gospel? Is the reason behind it the kingdom of God? Or am I just trying to get done with the day? Am I just trying to... Again, there's nothing wrong with needing a little rest, but, but purpose and structure can actually impact us in a way that gives us the freedom to be who God's created us to be. And I think that's um, explicitly clear in the way that Paul engages cities that he, he finds very common to him and cities that are completely different than his normal rhythms. So um, as we get prepared for communion, let's, let's pray and, and really focus in on uh, what kinds of rhythms has God given us for not just this year, but, but going forward as a community and as his children. Father God, thank you so much for the fact that you love us, that, that you approve of us, um, that we don't need to do something to earn your love or to get it back, um, that we have it still because of what um, your son Jesus did for us on the cross, that we don't, don't even have to fear death because we know that you conquered it for us. And so I just ask is, is that we are, are blessed to be able to have Luke's um, history of, of Paul's uh, ministry, that we would learn by, <laughs> by Paul, the learner, who's, who's out asking really great questions. He's being intentional um, about the conversations that he's having. And I pray for us that we would just look into our, our daily rhythms, our, our weekly rhythms, whether that be at work or at home or with our friends and neighbors, and, and just ask, like, are, are you inspiring the practices that we have? Are you inspiring the habits that we make? Or are we just falling into those um, because maybe they're comfortable or maybe life's really busy? Um, and in all those cases, Father, uh, we know it's okay, but we also know that by your power, um, we can change those things. We can, we can step into conversations with intent uh, and empathy and kindness. Uh, I just ask that as we, uh, as we consider our rhythms, as we consider the ways that we um, make certain parts of life second nature so that you can be our first nature, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear uh, for our friends, our, our families, for our co-workers, for our neighbors, that we would love them well, that we would ask them good questions because we care about what they think and how they feel. But ultimately, Father, we care about those things because you care about them. Um, that you inspire us to be selfless and to die to ourselves, because it's exactly uh, what you've shown us to do. And it's by, um, it's by your spirit that we can walk in and, and do those things like you. So we just ask that you would help us to consider these things deeply and um, that you would show us the next step um, for each of us today uh, as we seek to follow you.